everyday injustice. Too many wrongful convictions, corruption has infected the criminal justice system. Leaving too many people helpless, fighting for their lives instead of receiving justice, people suffer. Is that why they say justice is blind? Hello and welcome to the Everyday Injustice Podcast. I'm your host, David Greenwald. For the past 10 years, we've operated Vanguard Court Watches in California, including San Francisco, Sacramento, and Yolo counties. Our goal? Expose everyday court injustices, and now, more broadly, shine a spotlight on injustices in the entire criminal justice system in the form of wrongful convictions, police and prosecutorial misconduct, and mass incarceration. This podcast hopes to take it a step further and highlight criminal justice reform on a national level. Everyday injustice. Today on Everyday Injustice, we have Professor John Pfaff, professor of law at Fordham University and author of the book, Locked In. Welcome to the show, John. Thank you so much. So it's really interesting. Um, probably a decade ago or so, I read Michelle Alexander's book, The New Jim Crow. And uh, while I always believe she deserves credit for kind of jump-starting the pushback against mass incarceration, I've always been kind of troubled by her findings. Um, my first problem is that she seemed to ascribe a degree of intentionality to the mass incarceration problem which I'm not sure is warranted. And then your book Locked In really hammered her on empirically, arguing that mass incarceration is really not driven by the war on drugs. Correct. Yes. My, my, one of my arguments is that violence plays a much bigger role in prison growth, that over half of all people in prison are there for violent crimes, and that almost everyone's serving long sentences have been convicted not just of violence, but of something serious like murder or manslaughter or, or rape. Uh, in fact, fully 25% of the entire U.S. prison population um, is just in for murder, manslaughter, or rape. And that's really a problem from a reform standpoint because you've basically be, uh, created this perception that you can cure mass incarceration basically just by tackling low-hanging fruit of nonviolent, non-dangerous, uh, non-sexual offenses. I think that's right. And and in fact, just before my book came out, so I wasn't able to include it because it would throw off all the all the pages that were already already set. Vox did a released a, a survey they conducted a nationwide survey of about three thousand people uh, on sort of attitudes towards criminal justice reform. Uh, and and the, the two questions that stood out the most to me, um, one question was, do you think about half of all people are in U.S. prisons for drugs? Uh, and, and the majority of the respondents, they broke it out by liberal, moderate, conservative, and a majority of all three groups um, agreed that about half of all people in prison are there for drugs. And it, it, the, the real number is actually 15%, one five, not, not 50, not five, zero percent. Right? So, so there's, a, there's a deep misunderstanding of, of who's in prison. Uh, and I think the next question that, that truly troubled me flows directly from that. And, and the question was something along the lines of, are you in favor of, of, shorter, of, of being less harsh towards people um, who have been convicted of violence and pose little to no threat of reoffending? Uh, and a majority of all three groups, from about 55% of all liberals to, I think, 
close to 70% of all conservatives said, no, they are not okay with that kind of change. Uh, and, and so I think that this drug-centered narrative um, has very much given people the sense that, that we can accomplish a tremendous amount um, just by focusing on drugs. But, but the, 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 the unavoidable reality is that if we released everybody who's in prison in, for drugs today, uh, we would still have the highest incarceration rate in the world. Uh, it'd be, and it would be lower, and that'd be, that'd be better, but it, it would still be, still be staggering by, by global standards. And so who and what do you see then as driving mass incarceration? So I think there's sort of two ways to, to, to think about it. You know, one is sort of what's driving the overall population. It, it, it is a, a response to violence. Um, and in, in many ways, kind of a very intriguing one, because what we see is that over the course of the 1990s, as as crime, violent crime goes down and as um, arrests for violent crime and serious property crime go down, uh, we actually see more people ending up in prison and, and the share who are in prison for violence growing, uh, which is the opposite of what you think, right? You think that as violence and property crime go down, we could, we'd have more time and resources to focus on drugs and then drugs would play a bigger role. Uh, but in fact, what we see is, is a, a push towards actually focusing more on, on violence, even, even as violent crime uh, declines. Um, and so from a total, so I think that that's one big part of it. Um, you know, it, it is true that, that if you look at admissions rather than people in prison, right, the number of people flowing in, drugs does play a bigger role there. Um, about a third of all admissions are for violence, about a third are for drugs, and about a third are for property crime. Um, and, and so there, you know, in terms of admissions, the nonviolent offenses of drugs and property play a bigger role. But even then, I think violence plays much more of a role than you give it credit for. I, I think one thing that's important to realize about our prison data is that we identify people admitted and in prison by the most serious offense for which they were convicted, not the most serious offense for which they are charged. Um, and so if someone is arrested on, say, a domestic violence aggravated assault charge, uh, and during the arrest they find heroin on him, it could be that you know the partner won't testify. It's, it's a factually complicated case. And so the prosecutor agrees to drop the, uh, the assault charges in exchange for the defendant pleading guilty just to the heroin, but then demands prison time for the heroin because of the assault, that person shows up in our data as a nonviolent drug offender, even though he's actually in prison, really because of the uncharged and therefore invisible in the data violence. Um, and what, what one, thing I, one thing in the data that's really jumped out at me is, is this graph I've, I've cited before for in some of my other papers from New York State. Or if you look at the number of people in prison in New York State for drugs, it has very little connection to actual drug use in New York State, but almost perfectly tracks violence in New York State. And so it's very clear that, that even on this admission side where drugs and properties plays a, plays a much bigger role, some amount of that, and we, we have no idea how much, but some chunk of that really is actually about violence more than the drugs or the property crime. And that's going to make it really difficult uh, to drop the prison population by half, like some people are calling for, because you're going to have to uh, cut prison for people that have committed violent crimes, right? That, that's right. And I, I guess I, my, my attitude is, is less that it's going to make it hard. I, I mean, I agree with that, but I think, I think it's important to frame it as more it requires us to talk about this in a different way. I, I think that we can, the public can come to a different location. We just have to engage directly with this issue of violence. 
on Alabama's tier, you'll say, oh, we just can't talk about this. It's impossible. We're not ready for this yet. Um, and, you know, maybe for those negotiating directly as legislators right now, that that is true. Um, but I think more broadly, we have to start shifting this conversation in the direction of saying we really have to talk seriously and 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 carefully about about violence because the fact is is we actually do understand now more so than the past ways to address violence that don't involve prison we just have to get the political conversation moving more in that direction and what do you see as the fix here i mean there are there there are lots of things i mean violence is a very multifaceted issue i mean just i I think one great way to sort of see how even just using term violence oversimplifies a very complicated picture you know think about how we talk about gun violence like that like that's a thing but but you know there's actually four different types of gun violence one can easily come up with right there's sort of the mass shooting violence there's the there's the um more i guess three there's more individual shooting violence and then there's suicide violence right and and each of those requires a different kind of response and each of those has a different kind of impact a different kind of of location and and way in which it occurs it's not just a homogenous thing called gun violence and and the things that might stop mass shootings will have almost no impact on 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 small gun shootings and things that have impact on sort of the small shootings might not have any impact on suicide these these are three very different things require different different responses right and so there's there's a wide range of of approaches and, and they're they're not None of these is some sort of silver bullet, but they, they suggest ways to think about it differently. You know, ranging from sort of you know non-police street-level interventions like this program called Cure Violence uh, that operates in a lot of major cities in America and actually elsewhere in the world, uh, which is sort of premised on this idea that you can almost think about gun violence like like a contagion that you can actually watch a bullet work its way through a social network, or you know, A shoots B. Um, in retaliation, B's friends shoot back and they hit C. In response to that, C shoots and that hits D. Uh, you know, one study in Chicago found that something like several hundred shootings all kind of tied back to one initial shot and you sort of watched the retaliation spread. Right? So the idea of incure violence is that you take respected members of the community, elders in the community, former gang members in, in, in high crime areas, and when A shoots at B, they immediately intervene with B and B's family and B's friends to, to think about how do you respond to this. Um, in a way that doesn't involve more violence, right? People who, who have the, 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 the social credibility to have these arguments. Right? There's some evidence that cognitive behavioral therapy and anger management program training work, especially on, on, sort of on young, younger people, maybe not on older. Um, you know, in, in Brooklyn, there's, there, there's been this long-running project called Cure Violence that, that, it, that you know, introduces restorative justice approaches to deal with serious violence, aggravated assault, armed robbery, where you have the, the victim and the injurer sit down with, with each other and other stakeholders and, and discuss sort of what forced the injurer to come to terms with the harm he caused and to have the injurer and victim work out some sort of way that the injurer can make amends that's not just locking him up in, in a prison. Right? And, and, and that's just three things that I'll talk with my head, right? there's a growing understanding of what can work. It just requires you know, more effort to, to, to make these options you know, more widely politically available. And, you know, you mentioned that uh, there are different types of gun violence, even within those categories, they're vastly different because I remember uh, a few weeks ago, I covered two murder cases that were completely different. One was this kind of domestic violence situation where where the guy uh, ends up shooting his mother uh, after some kind of uh, mental health crisis that that kind of spiraled out of control. And the other case was 
uh, a bunch of kids that uh, were involved in uh, a, a gang and and they end up shooting somebody. So those are two very different shootings, even though they both involve a single victim and uh, gun violence. Right. Exactly. Um, and so it's, it's, I think this is I think you know instead of trying to I, I think sometimes you start with people start asking like, what's how do we stop violence and I think it's more about understanding that violence is some of it is is domestic violence and, and much intimate partner violence some of it is sort of gang violence urban sort of street level violence some of it is is you no know, mass violence some of it's, and 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 really think like each thing requires a different approach to to think about. But you know when it comes down to it, I mean. In both of those cases, it's hard to conceive of a punishment that doesn't involve lengthy prison time, right? It's hard to envision it now, right? But it wasn't all that much different in, in it was we weren't nearly as, as harsh as, as recently as like the early 1970s. Uh, I mean, I, I think one thing, one sort of really striking statistic to me is that there are actually about as many, if not slightly fewer, total murders now in total murders in 1970, uh, even though the population is tens of millions of people more. Right? So the homicide rate is dramatically lower. The total number of actual homicides is roughly the same. But the number of people in prison just for homicide today is equal to the total prison population in 1970. Right? We've seen a dramatic increase just within my lifetime of the amount of time people convicted of homicide spend in prison. Um, and so this is not some sort of enduring inevitable, unchangeable aspect of American culture, this is something relatively new. Um, I think another great example of, of how we view these politics as permanent, which aren't, right? you know, sort of the, the, the classic political horror story involving homicide and violence and the politics, right, you know, is the Willie Horton story, right? And, and, and the Willie Horton story involves this man, William Horton, um, in the 19, in the 1980s, Massachusetts, like 47 other, 46, 47 other states had a furlough program that would allow people in prison, even like Horton, who was serving a life sentence for, for homicide, to go home, to be with their families for the weekend, to, to you know, um, start that slow, gradual process of reintegration almost all of them were going to, to, to face. Willie Horton, William Horton, absconded. He ran off to Maryland. He committed a vicious home entry, home break in. He he assaulted the man who lived there. He raped the woman. Um, he gets rearrested. He gets convicted. He's now, you know, serving a life sentence in, in Maryland. Um, and he becomes sort of this poster child in the '88 presidential campaign for sort of soft on crime Democrats. And and by the time the dust settles from the '88 election, every state has abolished his furlough program. That's like you no. Know, and what's, what's remarkable in this program is that at the time we knew that these programs had a ninety that this program in Massachusetts had a ninety nine percent success rate. There's an op ed in the Christian Science Monitor written in 1988 when this ad was running saying that ninety nine percent of all people returned without any incident, but all it took was that one failure. So take no risk. But there's another Willie Horton story. There's another exact same set of facts in which a state had a furlough program. A ser- person with a serious violence is furloughed. He absconds from his furlough. He actually commits homicide in this case. And the various police chiefs and prison commissioners demand that the furlough program be abolished. And the governor stands up and says, I'm not abolishing this furlough program. This is an essential part of reentry. It's part of how you know, rehabilitation works. And I'm going to stand by this program. And that governor was Ronald Reagan in California. Right, by no means a progressive liberal Democrat, right? But even when Reagan was governor, that was just considered acceptable, right? We took these risks, and now, four years later, we don't. But this is they're, they're, this is not some core feature of us. It is something we've turned into, but therefore, it's something that we can also undo. 
Well, that reminds me of the conversation I had with uh, the new DA in San Francisco, Chase Bodine, right after he got elected. Um, he said that, you know, one of the first things he's going to do is uh, bail reform. And he knows at some point one of the people that are put out on bail are uh, put out without bail, rather, uh, are, are going to commit a horrible crime. Uh, statistically, it says that's the case. And so the real question is going to be what happens at that point. Does the system uh, kind of collapse on itself? Um, do they try to reform it like they're doing in New York, I guess, at this point? Or, or can they uh, persevere through that? Right. I mean, I think New York is actually a great example because while, yes, some Democrats are buckling under sort of this relentless fear-mongering that the police unions and the DA's offices are doing in conjunction, especially with the New York Post, uh, that will publish anything from any jaywalking on up and try to link it to bail reform. Like, there's been a remarkably powerful pushback as well, and, and several prominent Albany Democrats are refusing to budge on bail reform. Like there, there, there are some wavering. I know it's particularly disappointing to see something like you know, New York City's nominally progressive mayor completely capitulate to the police, but given his, his record, that's not entirely surprising. But there's actually been a remarkable amount of pushback against the fear-mongering that I don't think we've seen in past years, which gives me a sense that the, the politics of all this are, are possibly starting to shift in, in more fundamental kinds of ways. And in terms of your perspective, how do we uh, account for all of this? I mean, what determines uh, whether they're going to capitulate versus what determines whether they're going to just stick with it, even though they have to take a few hits? Yeah, you know, honestly, I don't know. And I don't think anyone really knows. I think this is this is kind of unexplored political territory. I mean, the United States never had an incarceration rate of, uh, like this before. And so we've never seen an effort to undo it before. And so, you know, I, I, I think it'll be very easy 15 years from now to look back and try to say, oh, this is what, this is what mattered. This is what didn't. But I fear a lot of that might just sort of be ex post rationalization of what really is, you know, a very tense, contested political process. And, you know, I think historically the prosecutors and the police chiefs and the police unions and, and the guardians have been used to sort of, across the board deference from from the media and, and a relatively sense that they are providing sort of subjective truth about how the system operates. And, and I feel like that that has shifted. You know, the New York Times has come out against the unions and and you no know, against this kind of severity. And, and even like the New York Daily News, which is by no means a, a, you know, a liberal paper, had an editorial, not even op-ed, but the editorial board uh, took on the police chief for saying he's being too quick to, to criticize the, the reform bill and give it a chance. Um, I think there's a growing understanding of that police unions and DA associations, they're not the objective purveyors of, of, of what's happening. They are, they are politically invested interest groups that, that, that are taking political stances for political reasons. And, that's, and there's, a, there's a much bigger infrastructure in place to push back than there was early in the 80s, but even perhaps in the, in the early 2000s when reform kind of got off the ground and then, and then fizzled. Um, and so I, I, think we're, I think we're in the very early stages of what could be a fundamental transformation or, or not. Um, but I think, you know, trying to figure out what's going to work at this point, it, I, there's not a lot of historical precedent to, to look to. So I want to get into this idea of uh, reform-minded prosecutors. And I, I saw you speak a couple of weeks ago in San Francisco, and you were kind of making the case that uh, reform-minded prosecutors were not the way to criminal justice reform. Or am I misinterpreting that? No, I, I think I, I think that was 
I, I'm more uh, on board the fact that they they can um they can they can do things. I think there's some some of the other people who are speaking there uh, were 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 less less open to the idea. I mean, I I think a progressive prosecutor certainly. My, my argument, I think, was less that progressive prosecutors can't do it. It's more that they can't do it alone, right? That that you know, one of the things, sort of, sort of the 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 progressive edge of progressive prosecutors are those um, who are, who are trying to sort of say things like, you know, these there are entire categories of crime that that I'm not going to 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 prosecute. Uh, and and my, my concern we have with that is that that leaves them kind of vulnerable, right? So, you know. Um, like Rachel Rawlings in Boston, she said, "I'm not going to prosecute. As a general matter, I won't prosecute um, breaking and entering of a structure to uh, without doing damage to to avoid being cold." Right. Um, so what she's basically saying is, "Look, the, the, the Suffolk County Jail is no longer your backup homeless shelter because we can't take care of unhoused people when it's cold outside." Right. And, and that's a you know that's an effort to sort of shift entire categories of 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 social policy out of the criminal justice where they don't belong into the public health side, public housing, public health side where they where they do belong. The point I was trying to make is my concern with that is that we all know who the DA is. Nobody knows who the housing commissioner is. Right? In fact, we can't even elect the housing commissioner. We can only get to the housing commissioner, I'm guessing, through the mayor. I'm guessing it's a city job, not a county job. I don't think anyone even knows that. Right? And so my, my fear is that when the DAs get on their own and say, I'm not going after low-level theft because that's an economic issue. I'm not going after being in this situation because that's a public housing issue. What's to keep the public civil side from sort of just waiting, right? Because what if they wait four years and homelessness doesn't get any better? It's easy to blame the DA for not enforcing these laws that are in the books and they couldn't enforce. And so I think it's important for the DAs to be much more explicit about working with the civil side and bringing them on board. In part, because I think that would just work better. But I think also it, it sort of spreads the political cost across groups and, and forces the civil side to sort of find itself more directly politically charged with taking this kind of responsibility. So there was a really interesting case last week in uh, San Francisco courts. Um, it started out as a, a trial in November. So it was uh, first prosecuted under Gascon's uh, administration as opposed to Chesa Bodine's administration. It was a case where a guy had gone into a Ross dress for less um, and it, it wasn't clear that he had shoplifted, but they suspected him of shoplifting, even though they didn't find anything on him. The loss prevention guy is an undercover cop or a off-duty cop. I don't know uh, what the difference right. is. Uh, he, he pursues him outside, uh, tries to flag him down, and, and the guy ends up like punching him in the face. And uh, like one punch knocks him cold. And, and so... The, they charge him with all this stuff. Uh, the jury convicts him. Uh, I had actually seen this uh, in trial, and I saw the video. It seemed a little bit... Uh, it was a punch. Um, but they end up uh, getting a recommendation of eight years in prison uh, for basically punching out a cop. Uh, so, so it goes to a rehearing last week uh, in front of the judge, and, and you have this really interesting dynamic. So the whole courtroom is filled. Half the people there are public defenders. The other half are cops. Uh, Chase Bodine's actually in there himself. And the DA's office basically stood down in this fight. 
so so they they submitted on on the argument the public defender is arguing that eight years is ridiculous and he should get uh, probation or something like that uh the the cops are not represented in the courtroom but they're pissed off because they want him to get 27 years how how they get to 27 years i don't know and uh chase bodine's just sitting there quietly so um, the judge ends up uh, staying with the eight years. Uh, the public defender's office is angry, or the public defender's angry at Chase Bodine, who used to be his colleague. Uh, the police right. are angry at Chase Bodine for not saying anything, and nobody's happy, and it doesn't look like justice is served. It was a bizarre situation. Yeah, I mean, as a general matter, one, I think one challenge progressive prosecutors do face, right, is that they you know the front line of sort of reform is trying to change how the police behave and so on the one hand they're they're being voted in to change dynamic with the police department but they also can't do their job without the police department right and that that's a very tricky situation for them to to be in um and, and it's a tough one to navigate right that's why that's a lot of the challenges you see with the police involved shootings and police involved killings right is that the da's offices are often loath to take those cases and oftentimes get sort of you no know, try to dismiss the charges drop the charges or make them go away because if they get that conviction that's make the police mad the police are angry they're not gonna bring cases it's gonna you know and all sorts of infighting will take place um and so it's it's a very it's a very difficult path to navigate and i think Every reform DA is is trying to figure out exactly how to how to work with the police without necessarily capitulating to the police. And you know, as a general matter, the police have I think a significant amount of of political capital to to expend. So I also thought you made a good point about not fighting for reform on the ground of tough on crime advocates. Um, so what are your thoughts about how you go about doing that, though? Right. So my, the point I try to make there is that. Oftentimes, the way reform is framed is by saying, "Look, we're cutting prisons and crime is going down, um, so so no, it's it's a win-win." And and that's oftentimes true, and that and that's great. But the risk is that it kind of suggests that we can only cut prison if crime keeps going down, or if crime goes up, we should we we should cut prison. And and I think that's the wrong way to think about it for for two reasons. One is that even if crime is going up, even if crime is going up because we are cutting prisons, which I, I'm not conceding that that would be the case. Even if that were the case, the way to respond to that isn't necessarily to invest more in prisons. It's, it's to invest in other things that can then reduce crime more efficiently. Right? That prison is actually a pretty bad way to, to an ineffective and blunt way to try to get at, at prison. I think the other problem I have with that is that it completely reads the people in prison and their families are, are almost rendered invisible. Right? That, that one argument against prisons is that they themselves cause tremendous harm and we need to put that harm that it's doing at the forefront, right? You know, you see this all, all the time in the, in the bail debate too, right? That, that the, the opponents of bail say it's making crime go up and the defenders say it's not making crime go up. And that's an important debate to have. But it's also like, look, there's violence on Rikers every day. There's violence in San Francisco's jails and LA County jail. And, and if you're keeping people away from that violence with their families, away from those harms, that that counts too, right? And, and we, need to, we need to remind people that reform isn't just about sort of this abstract notion of crime. It's about what is the entire sort of prison system doing to not to deal in it, but their families and their communities. And there, there are tremendous harms um, that we just don't pay attention to. Right. In fact, my next big project is trying to say, what is the actual 
social cost of prison, right? Not not the fifty billion we spend every year on prison from from state budget. That's most of that's wages. What that is is kind of a strange thing. It's more like what is the health impact of all these things with the prisons? So some studies suggest that every year in prison uh, cuts your life expectancy by two years, right? So how so we cut short through prisons, right? In prisons across the world, right, the risk of drug overdose death goes up significantly after release because you know your 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 use declines, your tolerance declines, but you're you're not completely off your use of drugs. But drugs in prison are, are much less pure and, so you, and more expensive, so you leave prison and the drugs are cheaper and pure, and you overdose. Right, these deaths are are, are significant and, and and income loss and family loss and, and family formation problems and, and a whole host of, of social ills. And what's really striking is that 40 years in this prison boom, we've never bothered to actually estimate any of these costs. We have no, I mean, there are individual studies here and there looking at them, but there's never been any systemic effort to really measure what is this total human cost that, that this response to crime has imposed. Um, and I think we need to make that picture much more central, that, that there's a staggering human and social and community toll to incarceration that are focused solely on crime and crime rates just completely ignores. Yeah, and I think that's a good point. I mean, when just look at the bail uh, reform debate, one of the reasons to do away with pretrial detention is you argue, well, you know, you're you're taking people who are making, uh, might be making money anyway, and taking them out of their families, so they can't uh, they can't make any money anymore, uh, so their families are going to have trouble surviving. Uh, you're you're putting them in a position where they're going to lose their housing, they're going to lose their jobs. Um, if they're going to school, they're not going to get education. And then you, you look at the impact on the next generation and somebody like Chase Bodine can talk about, you know, his experience visiting his parents and he actually turns out okay. But, uh, you know, he, he'll also talk about how the other people that are visiting their parents in prison, uh, they're not turning out okay. You know, they're not going to school. They're not going to college. They're not uh, getting good jobs. Uh, they're perpetuating the this cycle. And so, you know, there's this big trade-off that you want to incarcerate people to protect society, but then by incarcerating people, you're actually causing a lot of harm to society. Right, exactly. And, and remarkably, we've never really bothered to try to actually measure what those harms are in any systemic kind of way, uh, despite sending tens of millions of people cycling through prison uh, over the past 40 years. Um, we've probably made close to half a billion arrests, um, and, and we've never really bothered to try to, to, to estimate that at all, which is a, a pretty damning indictment of, of how we've approached this, this massive sort of revolutionary social practice over the past four decades. Well, um, we are out of time. Thank you so much for coming on our show. Thank you so much for having me. This is, this is a great conversation. Thank you. That was uh, Professor John Pfaff from uh, the University of Fordham Law School. Um, and I strongly recommend his book, Locked In. Uh, it's an interesting read. He, he punctures a lot of myths that I think have perpetuated in the criminal justice system. And I think the biggest is that uh, the war on drugs is the driver of mass incarceration. And what he shows is that's not true. Uh, We have to deal with much more difficult issues, thorny issues. Everybody wants to say, well, we'll we'll just release all these non-dangerous, non-violent people and we'll leave uh, 
will lead the violent people. Well, we're not going to reduce prison population if, if we do that, uh, other than on the margins. Very interesting conversation. This has been Everyday Injustice. I'm your host, David Greenwald. Join us again next time for another episode. Thank you to George Powell and Norman Mouse Quake Barrett for the use of our opening Everyday Injustice. You can see more of George's music at www.justiceforgeorgepowell.com. That's justiceforgeorgepowell, all one word, dot com.